0: So we come to the very last of our seven churches, the study that we've been doing in these first few chapters of the last book of the Bible. And here we are at the church that's perhaps best known in terms of a study of these seven churches, the Church of Laodicea. And perhaps the reason it's best known is because the message here seems to strike very much to the heart of American and Western Christianity. And so it it may well be that you you look at these familiar words and you think, yeah, I think I've I've attended to these words already. I think that I've considered these things already and uh, I think I'm good. Well, I would recommend that today we allow the Lord to speak to us afresh as we read his word together. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter three, And verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, So be earnest and repent, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these words are perhaps well known, lukewarm Christianity, we've all heard the message, we've all perhaps shared the message, maybe in our house churches we've considered these things. And of course, if you've done any cursory study of the text, you know that again, in this particular case, Jesus is speaking to a church in a city that has somehow, at some point, acquired the spirit of the city in which it lives. It's somehow, in some place, acquired the identity of the city. There is a greater identity, of course, the identity of being the children of God. But there is an identity that comes to us from our environment, from, from our location, from our family, from our heritage, from our history. And, um, and of course, that's true here in Dayton. It's true in the suburbs of Dayton, Kettering and, and Centerville. There are, there are particular identities that, that are consistent with particular places. And those identities are easily and often without thought acquired by those who immerse themselves in those contexts. And of course, that's what's happened here in Laodicea. Laodicea, as many of you will know, was a a city that was well known for its wealth, for its prestige, for its power, for its status. The ruins of Laodicea today in central Turkey are amongst the greatest ruins of any city found anywhere in the world. They are amazing to behold. When you walk through the ancient marketplace of Laodicea, you can almost hear the market traders. It's just such a stunning environment, a place where quite clearly people of wealth and power and prestige lived. And when you go into the homes, though perhaps modest from the perspective of America in the 21st century, they were homes that had amenities far beyond the amenities that would be known at the time and might be known throughout the centuries between then and now. This was a city that had running water. This was a city that had civil engineering that that provided water throughout the whole city. The city itself, uh, on one side of a valley away from another city called Hierapolis, the ruins of which are still there today, where today you'll go and you'll see, and I don't know why it's particularly true, but it's always the case, you'll find lots of Russian tourists. I went to um, Hierapolis and uh, Laodicea just a few years ago and you go to Hierapolis, uh, which is mentioned in scriptures, though there is no letter or or specific message to the church in Hierapolis, but there's clearly a church there, probably planted at the time of Paul, like the church in Laodicea. Uh, You go to Hierapolis, and the thing that you're struck by immediately there are the hot springs. And it seems as though this is a, a particularly kind of big deal amongst Russians and Eastern Europeans. And um, there they are all taking the, taking the waters in the open air, uh, walking around in their Speedos. It's a delightful sight. <laughs> and um, and uh, these, these pools are of, uh, of different temperatures. And so, you know, there's a cooler one and then there's a hotter one and then there's one that peels the skin off you and, and, um, and all of that. And, and of course, I, I didn't get to, to, to take the waters, as we would say in England. Uh, but I'm I'm one of those people that when I have a bath, I really really like it hot, so hot that it takes me about five minutes to get in. You know, you know that type where you, and then you have to get out again. and go, okay, oh, I'm going to do it. Well, that's the that's the kind of when back in England we um, in the uh, in the parsonage that we that we lived in in Sheffield we we got a new bath that was big enough for me to get in. And uh, dear Sally, she, she used to try to get in, and it was so long that she would slide and disappear under the water. And so we had to find it, we, literally, this is true, we had to put a little box into the bath so that she didn't, didn't disappear every time. So, So you know, you, we've all got our own bathing habits, and you've got some of mine by now. But, um, but there in, in Hierapolis are the hot springs that fed the, 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 the civil engineering of Laodicea. The water came via aqueduct through pipelines. There were, there were pipes and it was incredible. The, the, the level of engineering even now would be just astonishing. And this water was piped and brought across the valley several miles away into this remarkable city, and the homes of Laodicea were served by lukewarm water. Because by the time it got there, of course, the water from the hot springs was lukewarm. And of course, it was lukewarm, which meant that the sediment in the water the calcium carbonate that was suspended at a particular temperature began to be released. And so a kind of slurry began to develop. And the calcification of the pipes was very evident. And of course, at that particular temperature, bugs would grow in abundance. And so unless you boiled the water, that had been piped to you from Hierapolis, you would get ill. And you would, at minimum, have to spit the water out. At worst, you would become sick and vomit the water out. Can you see the imagery that Jesus is using? I always think it's funny, you know, I, I train, and, you, you might, having heard me wonder why I would do that, I train preachers and pastors in, in lots of different places via the internet. We use a a, a medium called zoom and um, and the product of that uh, is is coming out in the next few weeks i've written a new book on um, on all of that and um, and the reason I tell you that by the way, is not to either uh, promote myself or the book, but I think it's awful you know when you're in a congregation and you know, the, the people that are seeking to lead you are doing stuff that you don't know about. Do you know what I mean? And you kind of go, I didn't know he was doing that. Well, that's what, what I'm doing over these next couple of weeks. And what's interesting for me is that I'll, I'll speak to a lot of these, these preachers and pastors who are drawn from the same traditions that we're drawn from, you know, they're Bible people. They're people that believe that the gospel has a power in and of itself. And so I'll say to them, so how have you been contextualizing your message? And they'll say, mean, the power of the gospel. And I said, well, yeah, but I get that. And but but what about you know making it applicable to the people that you were? And then I'll point out. I'll say, do you think Jesus needed to contextualize his message? Well, (laughs) he did whether he needed to or not. It's amazing how contextualized these messages are to the churches in Revelation. They are written and, and communicated in such a way that it would be unmistakable to the people of Laodicea what it was that Jesus was saying He was saying, at the source, you were red hot, but now somehow you have travelled a distance and what used to be hot is now lukewarm. It would be better for you to dig a well where you are and get cold water than it would be to have the lukewarmness that you currently live with and you say perhaps in your heart as i would perhaps say well i think i think i'm hotter than most in terms of my faith well that may be true but ask yourself this this morning when you think back to the first days when you believed Was your passion for the Lord hotter than what it is today? Has that hot, bubbling spring of life within you travelled some distance since then? The thing for Laodicea, that their lukewarmness really was created by was this sense of self-reliance. Jesus indicates self-reliance by by pointing out that they, they see themselves as wealthy and as prosperous and as people who have more resources available to them than the average. And again, from an empirical point of view, that was absolutely true. Laodicea was destroyed as were several of the other cities in the valley in which it was found in the year AD 14. So perhaps even within living memory of the oldest people in Laodicea, there was a catastrophic earthquake. An earthquake that destroyed the entirety of the city and all of its infrastructure. Now most of the cities of the region drew upon imperial funds. FEMA came in, offered tarpaulins and people and portable homes and all that kind of stuff. Laodicea was so wealthy that they said, give the money to other people. We'll rebuild out of our own pockets. And what they rebuilt was one of the most glorious cities of the ancient world. That's how self-reliant Laodicea was. Self-reliance is really the problem that's at the heart of the Laodicean situation. The reason that they had drifted from the Lord was not because they consciously didn't want to be close to Jesus. It's just that they had become more consciously reliant upon themselves than upon Him, And it is so common in all of us that this happens. And it can be for a whole variety of reasons. There are mechanisms within us that cause us to to move into a kind of default mechanism that, that, that encourages us to rely upon ourselves rather than turn to the Lord. Jesus, is speaking and he's saying, I'm knocking at a door. And the door uh, is a door that we need to open. There's a, there's a famous painting that you'll find in St. Paul's Cathedral. There's another one in one of the Oxford colleges, Holman Hunt, the pre-Raphaelite painter, painted these uh, re- remarkable uh, these remarkable depictions of Christ. He called them the light of the world, but the the inspiration for these paintings were the words of Revelation chapter three. And when you look carefully at this remarkable painting, you notice that the door is overgrown on the outside and there's no handle on the outside. You see that? Jesus has access when you allow him. Jesus is a gentleman, a gentle man, and he will not force himself upon us or upon you. And so he knocks. But here's the thing I've noticed about that door. I've noticed that there is a handle on the inside that I need to attend to and, um, and get a hold of and open, but I've noticed this about this door. And of course, dear old Holman Hunt was in a time before such things were part and parcel of life. I've noticed that on the door of my heart, there's a return spring. Has anybody else noticed that? Yes, the door will stay open. All the time you hold it open. But the moment that you move away and start operating in self-reliance and independence and you take your hand off that door, the door begins to close. Now let me be clear with you. From a theological point of view, Jesus is not suggesting that he's not present in the life of every believer. But like Paul, In Ephesians chapter three, he's simply saying this, there's a difference between me being present in your life and me being welcomed in your life. There's a difference between the theological truth, which is that you have been transformed by the indwelling presence of the Spirit and the conscious reality of you and I welcoming Jesus to dwell in our lives, where he comes in and fellowships with us and we talk with him. Jesus says, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. The the picture is always of intimate fellowship and communion. How does it happen? Well, it, it happens for a whole variety of reasons. And there are are examples littered throughout history of people who have been self-reliant and in their self-reliance have foolishly forged ahead and found themselves in perilous situations. Think of the captain and crew of HMS Titanic. April 14th, 1912. They're wanting to set a record for the crossing of the Atlantic. It's the maiden voyage of the Star Line's greatest ever vessel. And because the ship is thought to be unsinkable, there's no one that can imagine how five of the watertight compartments can be punctured all at the same time. Because if four are punctured, then it cannot sink and no one can imagine any set of circumstances that would puncture all five. And so Captain Smith tells the engine room to forge ahead through the darkened waters of the North Atlantic. We know what happened. Catastrophe, heartbreak. 1,500 souls are lost. And if it were not for that noble Captain Captain Rostron of the Carpathia, California, of course, had sailed away from the disaster, unknowing of what was going on. But if it were not for Carpathia, then many more would have been lost. This is how it happened for me. I got a message. I was in, um, I was in Budapest working with some pastors, I got a message to say that my dad was dying. And um, this is about uh, 12 or 13 years ago. And so I, I got to London, I, I got to the hospital. He was a Chelsea pensioner, that's a, a man who working in the army, in the armed forces, has lived a life of distinction and they get a special place in the Chelsea Hospital, which is part of the kind of royal uh, heritage of the nation. And that's where he spent his last years, after my mother died, and was sent to the critical wing of the local hospital as he developed pneumonia. And I'd had a great relationship with my dad for most of my life. I'd been privileged to baptize him and my mother. But just before his death, a little insinuation was placed in his heart and mind about us and our relationship. And I had no opportunity to resolve it before he died. And I didn't expect it to have the effect on me that it did. But it was, it was a surprising and terrible thing. I, I went through that experience of being with him as he died, but I just had this terrible, terrible feeling of something that was unresolved. Now my default me- mechanism, like yours, is to look for some resolution within myself. Now I'm you know I'm a mature Christian, I, I know better. But in my pain and in my loss, somehow I didn't. And I I looked to myself for a solution. I I I, I try to I try to settle it in my own mind. And what happened was that I found in just a little while that my heart had drifted from the Lord through the pain and the grief and my own desire to fix what was broken myself. Do you ever catch yourself trying to fix what is broken yourself? And there goes the door on its return spring, closing on the Lord. And there, that fire that is only brought about by the intimate presence of the Lord Jesus who's welcomed in my heart. There goes the fire that once burned so brightly. So how do we, how do we resolve all of this? How do we, how do we come to terms with this reality that is a, that's an inbuilt mechanism since the fall. The inbuilt mechanism that all of fallen humanity find themselves in, which is to turn to themselves and find some solution, some reconciliation within themselves to the problems that they face. What's the answer? Jesus makes it clear what the answer is. He says, I'm knocking on the door of your life. And then he says this, if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice, as though the knocking were his voice. And here is, a theme that is common to all of the churches. And here is a theme that is so universal and ubiquitous in the text that we've been looking at that really we have to pause right now and ask ourselves, have we got it? Because it seems as though right up there with the most important priority of our life is that we learn to attend to the voice of God. He who has ears, let him hear, is the message to every church, to every Christian. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And how do we attend to that voice? A voice which scripture tells us does not boom from the mountaintop, but is a gentle whisper. Well here I think we should pause and just be clear about a couple of things. It's your birthright as a Christian to hear the voice of Jesus. It's not a special gift given to some people. It's not a task that is provided to the preachers and the pastors of the churches. It is the birthright of every Christian. In John 10, when Jesus is describing the relationship between himself, the good shepherd, and all those that follow him, his sheep, he says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep listen to my voice. It's not that they can, it's not that they could, it's not that if they really try hard, it's not that if they pray and read their Bibles every day, It's that they do. So what's the qualification for hearing the voice of Jesus? Knowing Him, that's it. The qualification is simply that you are a sheep following the shepherd. Now you might say, well, Mike, I I mean, I, I just don't feel like I'm very good at it. Great, that's a good place to start. That's a great place to start but it's not possible for a Christian to start with I can't because you can. It's your birthright and mine in the definitive statement of the gospel. Why definitive? Because it's the very first gospel presentation of the newborn church on the day of Pentecost. You can't get more definitive than that. Peter preaches the definitive proclamation of the gospel. And when he's preaching that that definitive proclamation of the gospel and he's, answering the questions that are in the hearts and minds of his hearers. He says that what you see here and what you're witness to today is what was prophesied in the past. That every one of my servants, young, old, male, female, Sons and daughters, young and old, all hear. All prophesy. You can't prophesy unless you hear. It's our birthright. It's what God has given you as his greatest gift. And it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are or how familiar you are with hearing the voice of Jesus. It's your birthright and you can. Now some, I know, will be saying, well, you know, I think I hear the voice of Jesus when I'm reading the Bible. That's great. Most of the people that were being spoken to here did not have a Bible. I don't know whether you knew that. Just think about it for a minute. The canon of Scripture was not closed until the middle of the third century. Nobody, nobody carried Bibles around in the the first century church. I mean, how do you do that? Do you just have a great big wheelbarrow with scrolls? I mean, books weren't really invented until you know, the next few generations. Nobody had learned how to bind books. They were scrolls, I mean. If you went to the synagogue, sure, you know, there'd be some scrolls of the Old Testament, but nobody's carrying them around with them. There's no pocket scroll anywhere. So what are you doing? You're, you're, you're memorising Scripture as your, as your Jewish friends have taught you to do. You're memorising Scripture, and, and what are you doing with the memorization of Scripture? What you're doing with the memorization of scripture is testing what you're hearing in your heart from the voice of Jesus who speaks to you because it's your birthright to hear him. You see, that's what the scriptures do. And of course you can hear the voice of God through the written word. But the written word is intended to give you access to the living word who speaks to you daily who speaks to you hourly, who speaks to you moment by moment. We know enough of human behavior to now understand some of the ways in which the scriptures reveal how God communicates in the early centuries of the church's life, we would read the Scriptures and not really understand the mechanisms that are being revealed there, but there in chapter one when John is first attending to this amazing vision of the glorified Jesus ascended and risen, every part of him is being engaged by the risen Lord Jesus to communicate. He speaks and it's like a trumpet He reveals himself and it's a vision that is of cinematic quality. He sees and he's so overwhelmed by what he sees that his body reacts and he falls down. And when he's fallen down, the very voice of Jesus extending to him is the hand of Jesus placed on his right shoulder. So don't restrict the way in which God is going to speak to you. He may speak to you as you watch the sunrise, as you watch the children play, as you listen to the birds singing in the trees. It may be that God will communicate to you with the kindness of a person's touch or the graciousness of a person's smile. And as we learn to attend to the voice of Jesus still more and as we test what we hear against the written word, so we will become more and more familiar with walking in the conscious knowledge that we are the listening ones. We're the listening ones. We're the ones who hear God. I know people will think you're crazy, that's okay. I know your friends will think you're mad, that's fine. It's our calling, it's our birthright, it's our heritage. And we'll return to this subject on numerous occasions in the future. But what of us today? Tell me, dear friend, new friend I know, but dear friend, have you drifted from those first fires of love? Is the same passionate fire burning in your heart that once was there? Today, uh, the worship team are gonna come and, worship team, if you wanna start making your way up here, that'd be great. Worship team are gonna come and we're gonna have a response time like we've had over these last few weeks during the last song. And here's, here's what it is that I think we need to respond to today. We need to respond to this simple message, this simple word, that Jesus wants intimate, contact with our life. He wants us to open the door afresh and welcome him and welcome the fire of his presence. Welcome welcome the joy and the passion of that intimate connection that once was ours. And what is the promise? What is the promise? When I, was, uh, when I was a younger father, all well, my kids are grown up and got their own kids now. When I was a younger father, I, I used to have a lazy boy. I bought it in Arkansas when we, uh, when we worked there and we took it back to England and nobody had ever seen anything like it. They thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and um, I, I, right around right about six o'clock in the evening, I'd come in from ministry you know, I'd been out doing all kinds of stuff and I was worn out most days. And we'd have supper together as a family and we'd, we would always had different things that we did together on, uh, on, at supper time and we'd, we'd enjoy supper, it's great fun. And we'd get through supper time and the kids would kind of begin nudging and smiling and, and I would say, I think I'm just gonna go and catch the news. Now, what they knew was that this was just kind of euphemism. They knew that what I was going to do is I was going to sit in the lazy boy, I was going to put the television on, and then I was going to fall fast asleep (laughs) for at least 30 minutes. John Stott used to call it the horizontal half hour. (laughs) And because it was a lazy boy, it was just about horizontal. And it was a great big thing. And invariably, this is what I found when I was stirred by the music that told me that the news was over and I'd missed yet another daily round. Invariably I found a little child snuggled up on the lazy boy. Underneath my arm, somehow found their way, they'd wiggled and wheedled their way in, and they were snuggled up too. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I'll give room on my throne so that you can sit with me. Isn't that amazing? Of course, throne means all kinds of things about authority and you theologians all know that. But most of all, it means intimacy. So today, Here is just a simple message. If you want to set aside that usual default of self-reliance, which is very common to me and I'm sure common to others, and if today you want the fire back that once was yours, then you come and pray. And as you come and pray, know that you're pulling back on that door that has a return spring on it. And Jesus will come in and say, snuggle up with me, I've got some things to tell you. Be ready to listen, because he's certain to speak. If you're in the prayer team, then please come and join me as we welcome folks at the front.